Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Eleanor of Aquitaine Biography. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! And welcome to Rex Factor reviewing all the Queen and Prince consorts from England. Uh, no. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> How long's it been, G-Man? <laughs> in- in- <laughs> uh, now, due to how large she looms in English and indeed uh, European history, we're separating Ellen of Aquitaine into one biography episode, which we're doing today, and then next time we'll do a review episode. But Privy Councillors, of course, will get four episodes so there's the biography the review the privy chamber and the latest installment in our film review podcast rex flicks in which ali is finally going to watch the lion in winter i am indeed yes what do we get to the bottom if we're just going to press play at the same time and be texting each other yeah <laughs> yeah sounds fun and that's that's a night out now lockdown yeah, style exactly, isn't it yeah <laughs> Now, despite these multiple episodes and her notorious reputation, a lot of Eleanor's life actually remains a mystery. With a nod to Churchill, uh, Parsons and Wheeler, who edited a book about her, concluded that rarely in the course of historical endeavour has so much been written over so many centuries about one woman of whom so little is really known. Really? Yeah, we know a surprisingly little about her, given how famous she is. And it's easy to see her as a figure out of time, or indeed beyond her own time. She almost becomes the thing of legend. But she is in a proper historical context, from the more obscure Saxons who carved out arenas of power, particularly as Queen Mother, to the Norman Matildas, who we did last time, who all acted as regents for their husband. Eleanor is still part of our overall narrative for the Consort series. I just can't get over the fact that she's not very well known. There's not much known about her, rather, rather than she's not very well known. It's not that we don't. It's not so much that we don't know stuff about her, but that there is sort of the the amount of detail you'd expect for someone so famous is much less. Right. Is there is there any other examples like that in history? Do you know, like that we or someone's very well fam- well known, but that we don't know a lot about them. Father Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Perfect example. <laughs> She's very much the Father Christmas of the Middle Ages. <laughs> Just to add a new legend to uh, to the pile. Mm. So anyway, with all that being said, let's find out who she really was. Duchess of Aquitaine. So Eleanor of Aquitaine was born, well... Even this is a subject of debate. We don't know exactly when, but it's now thought probably in 1124. Right. Uh, she's the daughter of William X, the Duke of Aquitaine, and Einor de Châtellerault. Uh, now, Eleanor's grandfather, William IX, was quite a remarkable character. Uh, a soldier, enemy of the church, seducer of women, and the first known troubadour, which are lyric poets dealing with themes of chivalry and courtly love. Oh, man, that is some heritage then. Mm. That's a claim to fame that she'd have. Well, indeed, yeah. Um, He abandoned his first wife in favour of his magnificently named mistress, Viscountess Dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, 
That is great. All-female 80s alternative rock act featuring Viscountess <laughs> Dangerous on lead guitar. <laughs> uh, and you then persuaded his son to marry her daughter, who is Einor. So Eleanor's maternal grandmother was the mistress of Eleanor's paternal grandfather. Oh, I'm not... I'm my... Uh... <laughs> It's like that's like a bowl of spaghetti. I've lost track of where they all go. <laughs> Basically, uh, his mistress had a daughter by her actual husband, right? And that daughter married the duke's son. Oh dear! Oh gosh! Yes, that's horrible. Okay. Technically, no relation. <laughs> no, no. But you know, if, when you're going around for Christmas, no, oh, that's thrown you a bit. That one. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. It's good to know where the level of too scandalous is. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a point at which my brain goes, no, that's not that's too much. That's silly. Um <laughs> uh anyway, interestingly, Eleanor was not actually formally named Eleanor. Oh, it's like an episode of QI. Her actual name is Einor after her mother, and she was known as the other Einor or Alia Einor, to differentiate. And Alia Einor becomes Eleanor. No. So as such... fact. Yeah, she may well be the first Eleanor in history. It's certainly because of her that the name becomes so popular thereafter. There are some who are before her and recorded as Eleanor, but the sources are actually from after Eleanor of Aquitaine, so they might have been retrospectively granted mm. that name so she basically gives us the name eleanor that's pretty rexy right away right mm. and it's your daughter's name <laughs> well indeed mine in my own daughter's <laughs> name so we're not 100 percent sure about when she's born and we're not 100 percent sure about what her actual name is but the bit that we can be sure about is of aquitaine mm. so worth understanding a little bit more about where she's from Aquitaine is a rich, vibrant duchy which makes up roughly one-third of modern France. Uh, the left, if I'm otherwise mistaken. Well, it's the left. It's also sort of the south and the middle to the oh. south. Letter L. Oh, yeah. appropriate. Hmm. Um, so we've got the Loire on the northern border, the Massif Central on the east, the Pyrenees on the south, and the Atlantic to the west. Hmm. That's a sizable European country today, isn't it? Well, exactly. Um, it's a cultural centre with profitable wine and salt trade, controlled major Atlantic ports like Bordeaux and La Rochelle, and the dukes are based in the city of Poitiers, ruling effectively like kings in a hilltop palace. And they even speak a different language, often referred to as the Languedoc or Occitan, though Eleanor probably would also have spoken French, but not English. Wow. It's really Game of Thrones stuff, really sort of powerful, mm. loads of different powerful factions under a, a king. Yeah. Now, growing up in one of the most cultured courts in Europe, Eleanor would likely have been given an excellent education. Uh, a noted troubadour described her as being gracious, lovely, the embodiment of charm, with lovely eyes and noble countenance, one meet to crown the state of any king. Hmm. Nice. But in reality, we don't actually have any definite portraits or contemporary descriptions of her. Oh. Um, her effigy, though, suggests that she was tall, large-boned, maybe with brown hair, but that might just be whatever colour they happen to have available. 
<laughs> um, is it still there? Uh, yes, it is. At Fontevraud, yeah. Wow. Ooh. Now, Eleanor takes on international significance in 1130 following the death of her brother and mother because at that point she becomes her father's heir in Aquitaine. Mm. So this effectively makes her a walking title deed. So there are fears that she could be abducted and forced into marriage for political ends. So if a sort of mm. ne'er-do-well noble just nicks her along the road and makes her marry him, then... Uh, that's not the rules, though, is it? That's not the rules, but it's what a lot of people do. Well, it's just you can't just steal people. Well, sadly. I mean, we saw that with Mary, Queen of Scots, and Lord uh, and Bothwell, her last husband, potentially. There's that question mark over whether she was forced into oh, yeah. it by him. It's that same thing. But they, they have to marry once their honour, as it were, has been impugned. Oh, my gosh. That is rubbish. It is. So, when Eleanor's father uh, leaves Aquitaine to go on pilgrimage, he makes her a ward of King Louis VI of France. So, the idea here is that if he doesn't come back, then she's got the protection from the most powerful man uh, on the continent, the vassal lord of all of these different counts and dukes, etc. He's planning to return. He's planning to remarry and have sons. But he doesn't return. He dies en route on a Good Friday in 1137. Uh, so, at 13 years old, Eleanor is now the Duchess of Aquitaine in her own right. Mm. On his deathbed, he apparently makes a will in which he agrees that Eleanor will marry the French Dauphin, so the heir to the French throne, and he insists no one else be told of his death until Louis VI has been informed. Is that true? Would that, I mean, that would have unified the country, wouldn't it? It would indeed. Now, her protector, Louis VI, is one of the most powerful French kings since Charlemagne, but uh, not terribly helpfully, he is also dying. <laughs> oh, no. So then his son, who's presumably a similar age to Eleanor, there'll be like two 13-year-olds in charge of this <laughs> great big place. Indeed, it's perhaps not ideal. Thankfully, Louis is able to take action, though. As soon as he hears about William's death, he instantly sends his son to Aquitaine in order to marry Eleanor, because he knows the risks, he knows what's at stake. Get her married as quickly as possible. Shit, shit. So she's totally up for grabs here? Totally up for grabs. It's a, it's a race. Whoever gets there first. Well, essentially, yes. And some historians have actually seen this as effectively a French hostile takeover of Aquitaine because apparently the will may actually be a forgery and there are no other surviving documents which actually suggest that this is what William, her father, intended. Because mm. one of the curious things with France at this point is that after Charlemagne's death, this huge kingdom breaks up into lots of independent regions and the kings of France only actually directly rule a fairly small area around Paris. So they're the vassal lords of all these other territories, but they don't actually really control them. It's That's so peculiar. Mm. So, But this then is the chance for the, for the French royal line to grab loads of France back. So it's far but, more than they could ever have hoped to take by force. Mm-hmm. But uh, and that was the plan, was it? They otherwise force is something that use. It, it was the king's goal to ultimately have all the land himself. Yeah, so he's been trying to centralise this power back again. So he has been quite successful in doing more, but to actually be able to do this much in one fell swoop, mm. huge opportunity. So 
Dauphin rushes to Aquitaine, accompanied by 500 knights, which again is beyond the usual requirement of a wedding escort. <laughs> and they are married within two weeks. Yeah. Eleanor wears a scarlet dress uh, to the wedding and as a gift gives Louis a rock crystal vase, which had been given to her grandfather by the Muslim king of Zaragoza. And uh, it's the only known item belonging to Eleanor which still survives to this day. But it's probably from like the 5th century or something. It's a really old and impressive object. Wow, that's amazing that that still exists. Mm. But not only that it still exists from the 5th century, that we know that halfway through its life it would belong to her. Yeah. Amazing. Quick, Very, very quick thing, because I know it's going to be a long episode anyway, but mm. wouldn't Eleanor's dad have wanted her to marry the Dauphin? Because ultimately that's the his family too, but ruling vast area but with a royal tag it is but i guess it's a bit like why the scots resist mary queen of scots being married to edward the sixth where it's seen as if the daughter is marrying a foreign king or prince then that's effectively seeing your territory being subsumed into another one. Oh, it's a sexism thing whereas aquitaine is fiercely independent so they don't want to be swallowed up as part of france they want to be their own yeah. separate territory and that's a key theme for Eleanor that we'll see in the episode, that this identity as the Duchess of Aquitaine is something she holds mm. with her. She feels a strong sense of belonging to Aquitaine. Okay. So, they're married. Uh, they progress through Aquitaine on a little progress. But they reach Poitiers on the 1st of August to receive the news that Louis VI has died in Paris. Uh-oh. So the Dauphin oh. is now King Louis VII. And Eleanor is the Queen of France. Yeah, okay. At 13? At 13. Crumbs, poor girl. Queen of France! So this is a pretty big deal. Mm. Obviously, we're Mm. thinking of her as a Queen Consort of England, but before all of that happens, she is the Queen Consort of France. Do we have any other of our consorts in this series that are going to be... going to have it of two... Nations. No, so we had Emma of Normandy, who was is the only one who is queen consort to two different kings of England. Mm. But Eleanor of Aquitaine is the only person in history to have been queen of both France and England. Um, Now, as you said, it's worth remembering that Eleanor is only 13 years old. Louis is a little bit older, but he's still also, you know, he's only 16 or 17 at this point. So they are both very Mm. young. Um, Mm. He's supposedly quite handsome. But he had been raised for the priesthood until his older brother died, and he remained a deeply pious character. And fundamentally, a boy raised by monks with the granddaughter of a licentious troubadour was perhaps not the most (laughs) natural fit. No, not at all. And um, my scandal bell has broken. That's what I've been fiddling around doing. Um, (laughs) Trying to fix it surreptitiously ready for the first thing, but I can can sense one coming up. (laughs) So I just need to fix this. There we go. He's back. (laughs) Uh, Eleanor struggles to make any real impact as queen in her early years, and very little evidence remains of her witnessing charters or having any kind of role in government. Um, Government, indeed, is still dominated by the queen mother, who's still kicking around at this point. Mm. We've found that before, haven't we, in other episodes? Uh, Senior officials are suspicious of her because she's from the worldly troubadoury Aquitaine. And being so young, it's quite hard for her to assert herself at this point in a foreign court. 
Uh, with a more confident and loving husband, this might not have mattered, but Louis is also struggling to adapt from basically priesting to kinging. Uh, mm. From 1142 to 44, he launches a couple of unpopular and unsuccessful military campaigns, both of which are, to a certain extent, uh, associated with Eleanor. And during the second campaign, where he was trying to secure a marriage for her sister, his archers accidentally set fire to a church in Vitry, killing the townspeople who are sheltering inside. All understandable and was an accident and, you know, all spare in love and war or, or, or outrage. Bit of outrage and he himself was mm. pretty traumatised by this. So to repent, Louis donated the Eleanor vase, the marriage present, to, the, to a church. Mm. And whilst gratefully received by the church, it's hard to imagine that Eleanor herself was entirely happy about this and might have seen it as a symbol, but that perhaps their marriage is not going in a very positive direction. Yeah. Oh dear, yeah, that's not so hot. Because after seven years of marriage, there still are no children between Eleanor and Louis. Mm, yeah. Mm. Um, now, the queens usually get blamed for this sort of problem, though. The issue does seem to be with pious Louis. He considered sex a distasteful necessity of marriage and uh, was genuinely averse to it at all times unless given a pretty strong nudge by his mentors. There's even some evidence that you can find. The historians have said that you, if you go back nine months from whenever he has a child, there's usually some big religious ceremony just beforehand. Really? Yeah, what an incredible thing to notice. Eleanor was alleged to have complained that she had married a monk, not a king. Yeah. Yeah, I think we'd have been friends. <laughs> However, she is starting to find her feet. While Louis was giving her vase away at this uh, church dedication, Eleanor has a set to with the formidable cleric Bernard of Clairvaux, or Bernard. Oh yeah, Clairvaux, I've heard of him. Um, trying to get her sister's excommunication rescinded. Uh, Bernard, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not quite committing to this. Am I saying Bernard or Bernard? <laughs> I don't know. Either way, you've got to keep it in. It's funny. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's too Bernard. It's Bernard. just easier, isn't it? Uh, Bernard didn't take kindly to this, and he rebukes her for involving herself in politics, at which point she breaks down and uh, tells him of her grief, the fact that she still doesn't have any children. So it's obviously weighing on her mind. This mm. softens him a little bit, so he pledges to her that if she agrees not to interfere with matter of states, he will pray for her to be delivered of a child. Okay. Deal. And thus, a year later, in 1145, she gives birth to a daughter, Marie. Uh, right, so maybe the, the priest, Bernard, went behind the scenes, created one of these big festivals to sort of absolve <laughs> Louis yeah. of his uh, in upcoming sins. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they said, right, now go to it, because she's going to keep her head down if you do. Yeah. Uh, um, so it's good. They've got a child, still not the son and heir that's required, because in France it does oh. have to be a male. So close. However, early in 1145, bigger news comes because the crusader city of Edessa has fallen to Muslim forces and a call is made for a second crusade to recover the city. Mm. Louis is very pious, so obviously he is keen to go. And Eleanor not only promises the allegiance of her Aquitanian vassals, but she also pledges to attend. Really? To go on crusade? Indeed, and she does, uh, along with various other aristocratic and serving women. Um, she may also have felt a religious calling to go, but it's also, of course, a chance to see the world. Wow, yeah, absolutely it is, but I suppose if it is a military campaign, is 
I mean, she's not, she's not just coming alone, is she? There'll be a whole load of people. Whole load of people, exactly. It's a big, big uh, endeavour. It's a crusade. Hindrance, maybe? Well, we'll see. Um, she does get to see the world, of course. On their way to the Holy Lands, they are lavishly entertained at Constantinople by the Byzantine Emperor. Mm. Um, of course, it's the, it's Rome now, in effect. It's the new Rome. So yeah, exactly. it must have been an incredible thing to have seen. Uh, unfortunately, that's a pretty rare highlight on the Second Crusade. <laughs> uh, the French are ambushed at Mount Cadmus on their way and suffer very heavy casualties. Uh, when they finally reach Antioch, morale is very low. Though for Eleanor, Antioch is something of a haven, uh, not least because it's ruled by her uncle Raymond. It's so um, interlinked, isn't it? Mm. Oh, Ray! You know, you just... <laughs> again, like Game of Thrones, though, where these vast differences in territory, you think, oh, and now they're going to meet this person for the first time. Oh, no, they're related as well. Mm. Uh, Raymond is tall, handsome, and accomplished soldier, and some people think Eleanor goes a little bit too close to Uncle Raymond. Oh, I don't believe it. <laughs> I'm going to give it a ding but it, I think that's just rumour isn't it she sides with Raymond in a uh, debate over whether they should attack Aleppo and is furious when Louis decides instead to go to Jerusalem and initially Eleanor actually refuses to leave and she has to be torn away and forced to leave the classic sign of love the <laughs> charge to Aleppo <laughs> Uh, although not keen to go, reaching Jerusalem would have been another remarkable experience for Eleanor. Um, she and Louis are welcomed as pilgrims with cheers and the singing of hymns. They take an elaborate tour through Bethlehem, the River Jordan, the Holy Sepulchre, culminates in a feast at Easter. So for people at this period to celebrate Easter in Jerusalem is really quite incredible. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Nice. And she may have enjoyed a remarkable companion, if not inspiration, in the form of the Queen of Jerusalem, Melisende. Uh, Queen Melisende, who had inherited the throne from her father and then had reasserted control from her husband, so was now ruling on behalf of her young son. Oh, wow. Oh, right, yeah. So she is a prototype. Indeed. Uh, but... Overall, the crusade is something of a disaster, and tensions are so high that when they finally do make the journey home, Eleanor and Louis go in separate ships. Oh, dear. Mm. And after a dramatic journey home beset by pirates and storms, Eleanor then receives the devastating news that Uncle Raymond has been killed in battle. Oh, dear. Uh, when they are reunited, Eleanor and Louis are hosted by Pope Eugenius III at Tusculum in Italy. And he's shocked to nice. find out that not only are the royal couple at odds, but Eleanor is now pushing for a divorce on the grounds of consanguinity. Good call. Mm. Yeah, nice. Technically too closely related, third cousins once removed, which is within the prohibited degrees. But Pope Eugenius forbids all talk of divorce, and Tusculum becomes this rather bizarre papal couple's retreat where Eugenius is trying to reconcile them, even to going to the extent of preparing a special holy bed which he insisted they sleep in together. Oh, my word. What a meddling priest. <laughs> Your favourite kind. <laughs> I'm not sure I like the cut of this fellow's jib. He um uh, doesn't know who he's dealing with. She. He how, how, how much power does a pope have if he can tell the king who to go to bed with? Well, I mean, it's his wife, in fairness, that he's telling him to go to bed with, so it's not too controversial. <laughs> I must insist. <laughs> uh, 
Um, now, this is probably a bit of a blow to Eleanor because she was thinking, oh, here we go, get this little rubber stamped by the Pope and off we go. And instead, couples therapy. But, Loon, uh, <laughs> but Louis was plainly delighted for he loved the Queen passionately in an almost childish way. Oh, I hadn't thought of that dynamic. Well, it was just for him, it was just a a Barney and they got back together and for her she was like no this guy's a loser but surprisingly to his credit the Pope proves an effective matchmaker as the following year in 1150 Eleanor gives birth to a second child hmm that's a special bed but else in it. it's another daughter Alex which is of course a disappointment for Louis who is really looking for a son and heir but maybe something of a lucky break for Eleanor because it's now 13 years of marriage still no heir and at this point, people are starting to get itchy feet and worrying that there isn't going to be a son and heir whilst they remain mm. married. So the nobles start to put pressure on Louis and he accepts that they need to separate and they have an annulment on the grounds of consanguinity in 1152. Mm. Two daughters will remain with Louis, but they are still considered legitimate because the marriage had been undertaken in good faith. Mm. Well, so it's amicable. It's amicable. Louis and Eleanor both yeah. depart the marriage with their original titles and territories intact. Wow, that is very forward-thinking, isn't it? But Louis has nothing again, right? Just a little bit of land around Paris, and he did have... Aquitaine. Yeah. Wow, he must really not have wanted to be with her. I mean, that's one of the reasons that um, some of his advisers try to stop him doing it for a while, because they're like, God, we really don't want to lose Aquitaine. Yeah, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. But, fundamentally, he needs an heir. Anyway, Eleanor is no longer the Queen of France. Duchess of Aquitaine, again! So, once again, Eleanor is an independent Duchess of Aquitaine. She's older, she's wiser, and she's in control of her own destiny. But... The issue of forced marriage does still remain, and indeed, on her journey home, she is forced to evade two attempted abductions. This is just crazy, because who who is protecting her? Well, she'll have her own vassals. I'm not sure if the French king sent her with any kind of escort, but she'll have her own vassals as the duchess. So, Eleanor needs to marry again, but this time, at least, she does get to choose her own husband. And the mm-hmm. man that she chose was Henry Fitz Empress, son of the Empress Matilda and Geoffrey Plantagenet, the future Henry II of England. Oh, phew. phew. Like, who's this guy? <laughs> yeah. I think you got that wrong, Graham. <laughs> uh, in contrast to the pious and ineffective Louis, Henry is a bundle of energy. 18 or 19 years old, he's strong, athletic, though a little bit on the stocky side, highly charismatic and a man on the up. He's already the Duke of Normandy, Count of Anjou and Maine and campaigning to take the throne of England. Mm. Mm. They'd met the previous year in 1157 when Henry and his father were in Paris for a peace conference and it's possible that they might actually have come to some kind of arrangement at this point, even before she was divorced, because as soon as she gets to Poitiers, Eleanor sends an urgent message to Henry to come to her, uh, which of course he does, rushes straight there from Normandy and they get married on the 18th of May 1152, which is just eight weeks after she separated from the King of France. That is weird. 
I mean, that's scandalous, yes, mm. but weird. Because she could choose to marry anyone. Yeah. And she does a business transaction. Well, I guess that's kind of what it is to a certain extent. I say it's tempting in sort of later legends to see this as a great chivalric romance. But as you say, the primary motivation is political, really. For Henry, of course, Aquitaine transforms in, into a ruler with an empire that's not been seen in Europe since Charlemagne. Uh, mm. And of course, greatly strengthens his position to press his claims for the English throne. For Eleanor, she's got that risk of the forced abduction, so she needs to pick somebody. She can't, well, she could try, but realistically, she can't just go on being the Duchess by herself. She's going to have to marry. And she probably likes what she sees in Henry. They've both got a driving ambition, forceful personalities, and uh, the regular output of children following the marriage suggests at the very least a physical attraction. Mm. Yeah, but and so this you're talking about an empire then, that's before even adding in England. It is. Um, All very good for Eleanor and Henry, but pretty humiliating for Louis. His ex-wife has married one of his enemies, and due to Aquitaine, his enemy now controls more of his own country than he does. (laughs) Oh, brilliant. Uh, He launches an attack on Henry's lands in Normandy, but is roundly defeated and forced to come to terms. Uh, Basically, as a bit of a a grump. Well... Oh, okay, yeah, because of the snub. But he's no match for Henry. Further humiliation comes because the next year, in 1153, Eleanor gives birth to a son. Uh-oh, uh-oh. So and, all those and, years... And Philip hasn't had one in the intervening years. Louis. Louis, sorry. Well, it's only one year. Oh, yeah, of course. He hasn't even yeah, had a he chance to remarry, yeah. Yeah. Um, so she'd been branded a failure, of course, for not producing a son during 15 years of marriage. So this will be a huge personal triumph and relief for her. And then to cap it all off, the next year, 1154, King Stephen of England dies and Henry becomes King Henry II of England. And Eleanor joins him for a coronation at Westminster Abbey on the 19th of December, 1154, and thus becomes the first and only woman to be queen both of France and England. What a ride. Mm. Amazing. And she's only just started. Indeed. Queen of England. Well, surprisingly, Eleanor's time as queen is actually relatively obscure in the historical record. This is going back to what we were talking about at the start Mm. of the episode. We don't have a huge amount of evidence of what she's doing. Uh, She acts as regent on a number of occasions in England and until 1156 is issuing charters in Aquitaine. But generally, she seems to have had a fairly limited formal role. Even in Aquitaine, after 1157, she stops appearing in charters and Henry II takes over. Oh, what? Partly this is because of the large number of children that she has. So until 1166, she spends quite a lot of her time either pregnant or with newborns. Yeah, fair enough. The other major factor is that just as in France, even though she's now older and more experienced, she still gets overshadowed by her mother-in-law, the Queen Mother, which in this case is the Empress Matilda. Yes, of course. One of the few people that Henry genuinely trusts and effectively a permanent regent for him in Normandy. So a huge influence on him. It's fascinating to imagine whether Eleanor and Matilda would have got on with each other because they have very similar lives in many ways um, or perhaps would this would have been something that actually put them at odds and they're basically rivals for Henry's affections. I quite like the image of Thatcher and the Queen. 
Well, I mean, okay, but what do you think about Eleanor Aquitaine? <laughs> <laughs> no, just thank you for sharing that, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> out of context. <laughs> I just leave it hanging there like a bad smell. <laughs> Uh, sadly, though, we don't know and uh, we don't have any records of when they met. And indeed, they would rarely have seen each other because Eleanor is mainly based in England and uh, the Empress is mainly in Normandy. So they probably didn't actually get to know each other very well. Mm. Mm, okay. However, Eleanor's last child, uh, John, is born in 1166 and the Empress dies in 1167. So Eleanor's position is now transformed. Childbearing days are over. Mother-in-law is gone chance for her to be a bit more authoritative mm. Mm. and what's more with the death of the empress helen henry is rather overstretched because he needs somebody else or himself to look after normandy and aquitaine is particularly hard to govern so eleanor is sent to aquitaine in 1168 to serve as henry's lieutenant are they still getting on it's not entirely clear some people see this as evidence that they basically split up um, it's possible that there was always an extent to which it's as much a professional as a personal relationship. Yeah. So maybe they're not exactly full of love at this point, but equally... But they're allies. Yeah, they're allies. It makes sense for both of them. She gets to go back to Aquitaine and be in control again. He doesn't have to worry about that large territory anymore. Mm. However, there is still a lot of uh, difficulties with Aquitaine, even for Eleanor. The rebellious Lucinians ambush Eleanor's travelling party when she's uh, heading to Poitou, and the leader of her retinue is killed while she seeks refuge at a nearby castle. Her escape was aided by a young and relatively lowly knight called William Marshall. Oh, yes! Excellent! He fights yes. a uh, heroic rearguard action before being wounded and taken prisoner, and his position would have looked pretty hopeless because he wasn't really worth anything. But nevertheless, Eleanor hears of his courage and ransomed him mm. and uh, then takes him into her service, which begins a lifelong devotion to the Plantagenet Angevin cause for William. And particularly, even though he doesn't remain in a household for very long, he obviously retains a strong sense of loyalty and affection towards Eleanor. Uh, for new listeners, now tune in to the Rex Factor special episode on William the Marshal Marshall. However, after a difficult start, Eleanor is finally able to enjoy some independence as the ruler of Aquitaine. She rules from Poitiers, issues charters in her own right, raises her son Richard, the future Lionheart, as heir in Aquitaine. So she steeps him in the culture, has him invested as the Duke in 1170. These may have been the happiest years of her life, quite possibly. She's got visits from other family as well. She's got her own court. But there are tensions brewing. Although Eleanor manages the daily affairs in Aquitaine, Henry is a terrible delegator and refuses to cede control of the military and financial resources. Mm. So when there's a rebellion in Aquitaine, the lords are forced to appeal to him rather than to her because she doesn't actually have the capacity yeah, I can imagine that's exactly as he wanted it. She, Can you please go there and do all this really boring admin? Mm. But as soon as the the swords come out, I want to play. Exactly. And if 1168, they were still on decent terms, but 
it's really all professional. At this point, perhaps you see the personal relationship starting to break down a bit as well. Aquitaine's very important to Eleanor, and also Henry is now embarking on a full-on love affair with Rosamond Clifford, the mistress in England. Okay. Now, these frustrations might not have amounted to anything significant, but Eleanor is not the only one to be at odds with Henry at this point. His biggest challenge is how to distribute his lands amongst his four surviving sons. And his solution is that his eldest son, the young Henry, will inherit England, Normandy and Anjou. Richard is going to tank Aquitaine, as we said. Geoffrey is going to get Brittany. And John has absolutely nothing. <laughs> oh dear. He's the priest. But he's got a plan for John. So at Limoges in 1173, a marriage is arranged between a marriage is arranged between John and a wealthy heiress. However, when Henry uh, agrees to give as dowry three castles, which are currently owned by the young Henry, it all turns to a disaster. The young Henry, who's never been given any power, despite the fact that he has actually been crowned co-king with his mm. father. Um. This is too much for him, so he abandons Henry, and he goes to Paris and forms an alliance with Louis the Seventh. Incredible! What a for- they need to—that's father and son. So strange. And this turns into a huge coalition, which becomes known as the Great Revolt, which also encapsulates the obviously, as I said, the King of France. Um, Richard and Geoffrey also join in. Various English nobles, the King of Scots, Counts of Flanders and Boulogne, and Eleanor of Aquitaine. What, what's their problem? What are they demanding? They just want to get control back because Henry's very controlling. Obviously, Louis in France sees Henry as his biggest rival and challenge. Lots of other people are... What can he do to make it right? Does he try and make it right or just go straight to war? Oh, this is war. This isn't a, like, oh, right. a strongly worded letter. This is a full-on mm. military campaign. But, despite the vast array of powerful enemies, Henry has greater resources, experience, and at this point, ability. So by 1174, the rebellion has been completely defeated. Mm. Now, to his sons, he's remarkably magnanimous. Young Henry gains two castles in Normandy and an increase in his allowance. Richard and Geoffrey get half the revenues of Poitou and Brittany. But for Eleanor, however, Henry is not so forgiving. Perhaps he felt her betrayal a bit more deeply, but most importantly, he can't trust her again and considers her a threat. Now, she's actually captured right at the start of the conflict, trying to escape to Paris disguised in male clothing. Taken into confinement, and she will remain a prisoner for the rest of Henry's reign. God, scandalous. That's as good as killing her, really, isn't it? She'd just take her out of the picture without mm. making her dead. Exactly. Mind you, that it, mind you, I can see why Henry was, um, in for that time, decided to defeat them and then also try and be reasonable. So yeah. just proven that he he's the boss, but also, okay, I understand. There you go. Mm. Not a great parenting technique, but <laughs> a strong negotiating one. Mm-hmm. Prisoner. So she's captive, but she's not clasped in shackles and thrown into a dungeon. It's a fairly comfortable confinement. 
just stay within the castle and these 500 square kilometres? Pretty much. So the expenses for a first full year in captivity were £161, which is the income of a lesser nobleman. The fact that she emerges with good health at the end of all of this suggests that she's got adequate nutrition and exercise, so she probably does get to go out on horseback and stuff like that at some point. Uh, Is it what we'd consider a spa, like a a holiday spa these days, uh, uh, like centre parks? Yeah. But for someone who's used to ruling Europe, Hmm. uh, okay. Henry does, however, limit her contact with the outside world, and particularly with her son, so she has no contact with them initially whatsoever. Now, given that he has no intention of releasing her, it might not have been surprising if, after appropriate delay, Eleanor had conveniently died. Yeah, 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 definitely. And, you know, at this point, she's a woman in her 50s. It wouldn't have been hard to explain away somebody dying at that age in those conditions. But following the whole Thomas Beckett thing, which had happened a few years ago... Of course! Yes! Oh, that must have such a bearing on everything after that. Henry can't really afford to blot his copybook with another tremendously scandalous death on his hands. However, Henry does request an annulment. Mm. He wants to remarry. Rosamond Clifford died young and was quite junior anyway, but he probably intended to marry a daughter of Louis. This is by Mm. a second consort, so not one of Eleanor's daughters by Louis. It's not quite that gross. (laughs) He, uh, he offers Eleanor access to her lands and the position of abbess at uh, Fontevraud, but she refuses and appeals to the Archbishop of Rouen to ensure the church's support. So Eleanor is not about to give up on her worldly status quite yet. Even though she's been in prison all that time? Even though she's been in prison. I mean, at that point, that's only a three or four, well, not even that, two or three years in. Still, but still, yeah. you don't know when you're going to get out. But she turns him down. Henry is stuck with her. Now, where she was and what she was doing is, for much of her imprisonment, almost completely unknown. So, again, all these big stretches of her life where we don't actually Mm. have a lot of detail. Uh, Recordings of expenses place her at Salisbury, Winchester and Sarum. So she's probably based in England for the duration. Mm. Uh, Tragically, her eldest son, the young Henry, dies in 1183 while she's in captivity at just 28 years old. Uh, She later confides that she was tortured by his death, but it did actually improve her situation because on his deathbed, he urged Henry to treat his mother less severely. Oh, nice. Good boy. And Henry does comply, albeit largely just to suit his own ends when it's convenient. So the following year, in 1184, Eleanor appears at court in great splendour for the public reconciliation of the three surviving sons, if not to actually help Henry create the reconciliation between the surviving Mm. sons. She later goes to Normandy and helps Henry block the efforts of the new French king, Philip Augustus, who wants to claim dower lands uh, in Normandy. Uh, Geoffrey, the third son, dies in 1186, but Richard continues to fight with his father. Now, initially, Henry's able to subdue him, and one way he does this is gets him to surrender Aquitaine to Eleanor. Because he won't surrender Mm. it to Henry, but such as his respect for the mother that he will still bend to her always falling out uh, but by 1188 Henry's health is failing and he's forced to submit to Richard who allies with Philip Augustus of France 
after which Henry dies on the 6th of July, 1159, at 56 years old, not long after hearing that even John had betrayed him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, it's always such a pity when I hear that Henry has died. Mm. <laughs> because uh, it was... It had such possibility, that reign. Well, somebody who maybe wasn't so disappointed about his death was Eleanor. Her time as Queen Consort is now over. She's no longer the Queen Consort of England. Um, But it does bring about a dramatic change in her circumstances because after 15 years of imprisonment at 65 years old, she is at liberty. And she also has a new title. Queen Mother. So the new king is uh, Richard the Lionheart, who's thought to be her favourite son thanks to their time together in Aquitaine. Certainly their relationship is very close, as one of Richard's very first actors king is to send William Marshall back to England to release her from captivity. Uh, when William gets back, she's actually already been released, but he is still able to con- uh, he is still able to confirm that Richard has ordered that in his absence, Eleanor is in control. Right. So she's never actually formally appointed as regent, but in all practical purposes, while Richard is absent, Eleanor is basically king. Mm. For the first time in her life, she's got full independence, true power, and despite her years in captivity, she shows herself full of vigour, goes across the country securing oaths of loyalty, revoking unpopular laws, finally meets Richard at Winchester and travels with him to Westminster for a grand coronation that she had probably arranged. And Richard's minimal experience of England means that he continues to rely on Eleanor, not least because he is determined to leave the country as soon as possible, leading (laughs) through a dramatic few years that sees her crisscrossing the continent at rapid pace. Yeah. Um, In terms of why Richard wants to leave England, it's the Crusades again. Saladin captures Jerusalem in 1187 and Richard took the cross. So in 1190, he heads off for the Third Crusade. Mm. Mm. Now, Richard at this point is in his 30s and needs an heir, uh, and he accepts this fact, but not enough to divert him from going on the Crusade. So instead, he sends Eleanor to go and collect his prospective bride, Berengaria of Navarre, who's from northern Spain. Mm. So Eleanor goes off and gets Berengaria, and they reach Richard in Sicily in 1191. But she's not there for very long because they get news that back in England, John is making an alliance with King Philip Augustus of France and trying to make himself regent. Yeah, they're not there long because they get a text that that John's making a right balls up of things again in England. (laughs) Eleanor has to rush all the way back to England, sorts things out, restores order, but then, 1193, on his way home from the Crusades, Richard is captured and held prisoner by the Holy Roman Emperor. So, of course, John kicks off again, rushes off to France, and allies with Philip Augustus. Mm. So you can just kidnap kings as well? Well, again, you're not really meant to, which is a point that Eleanor makes. But nevertheless, he's got him. <laughs> it's a fair point, isn't it? Yeah, particularly well, hard to the, the Crusader against. king as well. Well, I mean, yeah, I suppose, but... You can you just can't, don't do it. <laughs> Top tip, gang, all those listening. Don't kidnap people. <laughs> no, no, don't. Don't. It's very bad. 
So, once again, Eleanor leads the resistance. First of all, she averts a potential invasion from Philip and then forces John to stand down when he comes over with mercenary troops. So, once again, problem sorted. Nice. As for Richard, Eleanor dispatches men to establish his location, then calls a council at St Albans in June 1193 to discuss the terms of his release. Richard tasks Eleanor from afar with raising the huge ransom that is demanded. This is three times England's national expenditure. Wow. A king's ransom, if you will. Yes. Does he get it? Do they raise it? Well, once again, Ellen is in charge, so of course it gets sorted out. By December 1193, they've raised over two-thirds of the total. So Eleanor sets off for Germany, taking various nobles who will act as hostages, so surety for payment of the rest of it. Why? Surely an actual military campaign would be cheaper. Well. <laughs> just to say, no, let's go and storm the, the, the castle. Let's just go and storm the Holy Roman Emperor. Yeah. You can't go around kidnapping people. Teach them a lesson. Mm. Naughty. Anyway, Eleanor has done her job. She's reunited with Richard at Mines in uh, February 1194. And on the 17th mm. of April, she is alongside him for a second coronation at Winchester. Why second one? Uh, I guess because the fact of him having been in prison, there's a sense that his sort of royal aura has been diminished. So it's a kind of a reboot, rebirth. That's what people want when they just shelled out twice the national output <laughs> is an expensive coronation. Now let's do the Olympics. <laughs> uh, now, Eleanor, who is 70 years old at this point, seems to have felt that her job is done. Richard is back. He's taking control again. She first arranges a reconciliation between Richard and John and then leaves England and enters semi-retirement at Fontevraud Abbey. Oh, not surprised. She must be exhausted after trying to sort those stupid boys out. Hang on, Fontevraud, was that... That's where Henry offered her uh, the position of abbess. Yeah. Oh, right. So she eventually took out... And that's where she's buried. And there's a delicious irony here, because having been Henry's prisoner for 15 years, she is now effectively Henry's keeper. Because he'd want to be buried at a place called Grandmont, but this was considered too far to travel during a heat wave, so William Marshall had to think on his feet and took him instead to Fontevraud. Right. So Eleanor so she's, has got she, Henry. He's buried there. Henry is buried there, and Eleanor, at this point, is uh, effectively in charge of him. Well, that's not very nice. Have your have your abuser as the star attraction to your retirement village or whatever it is. Mm. Um, it's unlikely that Eleanor was completely removed from worldly matters. She may have adopted a similar role to the Empress Matilda in her final years at Rouen, sort of observing from afar but lending her wisdom uh, whenever mm. required. However, in 1199, tragedy strikes. Richard is carelessly struck in the shoulder uh, by a crossbow whilst besieging a small castle. The wound turns gangrenous and he sends an urgent message to Eleanor, who, despite now being 75 years old, force-marches herself over 100 miles to be with him. And indeed, she does make it just in time. So Richard dies in her arms at 41 years old. Oh, Oh, oh! That's, uh, that, but from a family that basically spent half the time trying to, if not kill each other, kill as many of their friends and allies. Mm. Although they were never enemies, were they? No, so they're always very close. It's a devastating blow to Eleanor. So in his elegy, she declared, I have lost the staff of my age, the light of my eyes. 
And Richard never had any children, did he? No, and there's a lot of tragedy for Eleanor because her one daughter, Matilda, had died um, just before Henry II and another daughter dies just a few months after Richard. So Eleanor now only has two surviving children. But she doesn't have long to stop to grieve because there's more work to do. As you said, Richard spent no time at all with his wife so doesn't produce the son and heir. So there's a bit of uncertainty about who's going to succeed him. Does she have any grandchildren at this point? Well, yes, she does. So in strict primogeniture, the next in line is Arthur of Brittany. So he's the son of the young son of Geoffrey. So that's son number three. Right. But primogeniture is not yet firmly established. And Richard has designated his brother, John, as his heir. Mm, okay. So Eleanor's got to choose that, between right? her grandson or her son. But in reality, for Eleanor, it's never actually a choice at all. It was always John. Queen Mother again! So yeah, given John's latter reputation and his actions in the first few years of Richard's reign where he was trying to steal power, Eleanor's support for John might seem a bit surprising, if not actually slightly disappointing. Uh, mm. Many have assumed that she didn't really have much of a relationship with John. She left for Aquitaine when he's only two years old, and she obviously consistently seems to favour Richard. But when she was in Aquitaine, John was then put at Fontevraud, which isn't too far away, so a close relationship may have formed. And indeed, although she defends um, Richard from John's machinations, she also twice advocates on John's behalf uh, convincing Richard not to exile John before he went for the Crusades, and then later helping to achieve a reconciliation despite John's rebellion. Might even have been because of Eleanor that Richard names John as his heir, because he'd initially named Arthur as his heir. Oh, right. So actually she's a, she's a Johnny all the time. She's in John's camp. He's her son. She's his mum. Team John. Okay. And what's more, she's committed to the preservation of the Angevin Empire and Arthur is a boy and he's a pawn of Philip Augustus of France and Philip is doing all that he can to destroy the Angevin Empire. Yeah, and a son's a closer relative mm. relation rather than grandson, I suppose. Yeah. However, helping John is not going to be easy. Now, for once, the easiest part of the puzzle is actually England because John spent more time... Uh, in England than any of his brothers and certainly more time than Arthur so immediately on Richard's death Eleanor sends a message to John who ironically is actually with Arthur of Brittany at this point uh, messages John and tells him to secure the treasure at Chinon and then get himself to England where William Marshall has already gone ahead to ensure everybody's going to stay loyal uh, France however is rather trickier Anjou, Maine, Touraine and Brittany all declare their support for Arthur and even Aquitaine is pretty ambivalent towards John because he's as much of an outsider as Arthur whereas Richard had already been the Duke of Aquitaine when he became King of England John doesn't have any technical claim there <laughs> so it's up yeah. for grabs so Eleanor is going to have to get on her uh, I was going to say high horse, but that's not the right thing, is it? Her war horse? Well, pretty much, yes. Yeah, she goes in a remarkably active campaign. Bit of diplomacy, a bit of military might. She cures the loyalty of uh, Poitiers to Rouen, which is up in Normandy, so that's you know, quite a big old distance yeah. there. Subdues some of the people who support Arthur and designates John as her heir in Aquitaine to ensure his inheritance in the duchy. 
So he watch if she dies, John would be king of England and Aquitaine again. So it would all be united. Yeah, and he is effectively now ruling Aquitaine, but it's still technically in her name until she dies. Okay, and then he just goes about losing it later. But so, how old is she at this point? Uh, so well, so in twelve hundred, John and Philip signed the peace treaty of Lagoule. So she's done her job there. So that makes her seventy six. Good work. Good work. Wow. No chance to rest, well, though. Biden's because, got a chance, then. Well, yeah, but there's no chance to rest, though, because one of the conditions of this treaty is that there will be a marriage between Philip's son and one of, June, and, uh, one of John's nieces by Eleanor's only surviving daughter, the Queen of Castile. Right. Now, John's not going to go all the way to Castile to get a granddaughter, so Eleanor packs her bags and off she goes crosses the Pyrenees and she goes to her daughter's court to decide which of her granddaughters is going to be the future Queen of France. Oh my God. She's not just having a role. She is the main player in Europe at the moment. Yeah. And it's probably quite nice. I mean, a hard journey, but equally it's nice for her to get a few months with her daughter, gets to meet her grandchildren for the first time. Uh, and she selects mm. uh, the younger of the granddaughters that are being considered, Blanche, who goes on to be a very uh, famous and powerful queen consort of France. Eleanor is meant to escort her all the way back, but uh, in Bordeaux, her military commander is murdered in the streets, and this seems to hit Eleanor pretty hard. So she sends Blanche on ahead, and uh, Eleanor withdraws in poor health to Fontevraud, hoping to finally get to enjoy a bit of peace. Mm. Well, I get the feeling you're doing a but. But John sets about undoing a lot of her good diplomatic work when he marries Isabella of Angoulême, who had previously been betrothed to the leader of Lusignans who'd supported him against Arthur. Now, the clever thing to do would be to try to appease them in some way, but instead, John's rather heavy-handed response leads to growing unrest, and the Lusignans make an appeal to Philip, who is, of course, John's overlord in France, and Philip mm. declares John's lands forfeit, even Aquitaine. And what did he do to deserve that? Well, it's an excuse. Philip gets an excuse, basically. So when John refuses to come to his court to answer the charges of um, mistreating the Lucinians... Pulling their beards, was it? Standard mm. John. He'd just been Johnning, basically. <laughs> John, have you been Johnning? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, once again, we have war, and once again, Eleanor is called into action. She needs to secure the loyalty of the key Aquitanian nobles. However, when she's on her way to Poitou, she is forced to stay at Mirabeau Castle, and she is besieged by the Lucinians and her grandson, Arthur of Brittany. And, oh, of course, because she, she, yes. Oh. And her position looks pretty hopeless. It's not a particularly big a well-defended castle, and John is over 80 miles away in Le Mans at this point. Mm. Mm. But sight of his mother in danger stirs John to action as never before, and he reaches her in less than 48 hours, yeah. which is some pretty big force marching, takes his enemies completely by surprise. They're having roast pigeon for breakfast in the morning, and suddenly he storms into the castle and takes everybody prisoner, lots of Lucinians, Arthur himself, it's the greatest victory of John's life, and Eleanor is saved. Oh, wow, I'm not sure I even remember that. Mm. 
That's amazing. Now, Eleanor is 78 years old and all of this drama is rather a bit much for her. So she really does retire this time to Fontevraud. She sounds like my mum. <laughs> yeah. I just, I've just got a one, more, one more thing and then I'll, <laughs> I'll be done. <laughs> yeah. This time she really does retire to the extent that she is actually accepted into the community as a nun. With all the garb and all that. Yeah. Uh, she received visits from some of her grandchildren, but her time on the grand stage of Europe is now over. And she finally dies quietly on the 1st of April in 1204 after a remarkable 80 years of life. Wow. I mean, this... It's exhausting just listening to it. You need to sort of stand up and give a round of applause. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. John is said to have been most violently saddened uh, by her death and ordered the release of prisoners for the love of God and for the salvation of the soul of our dearest mother. Uh, her death also perfectly marked the beginning of the end of an era because Chateau Gaillard, Richard's great castle uh, in Normandy, had fallen the previous month to her death and that lay the ground for the fall of Normandy and Anjou and Poitou uh, over the following summer. So this is when John loses, basically, the Angevin Empire. It basically dies uh, with her. Though Eleanor may have taken some comfort from the fact that the only continental possession that John still held at the end was Aquitaine. Oh, it's horrible, though, to see it all crumbling around you as you, as you retire, hmm. like for good, saying, I can't carry on. And you're right, it, it, the whole lot can't carry on with, without her. Hmm. And she sort of sees it all collapsing. That's so sad. Correspondence Corner. But yeah, so that is it uh, for Eleanor of Aquitaine. Lots to get our teeth into for the review episode, which we'll be doing next time. Um, that means, mm. of course, it's only the halfway point. But nevertheless, if you'd like to get in touch to let us know what you think about Eleanor or anybody else, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, where we are at Rex Factor Pod. Like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page or email rexfactorpodcast at hotmail.com. And remember to send in your hashtag consort cards. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever podcast provider you use, and subscribe. We are a free podcast, but if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a one-off donation via PayPal, and we say a big thank you to Elena Howell, who has done that recently. Thank you, Elena Howell. Or you can donate on a monthly basis and join the Privy Council to get bonus content. As we said, for Elena, there'll be a Privy Chamber episode and a Rexflix episode, so more to get from that. Uh, and we've got some new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. Alan Hannah Kerr, Maggie Brevik, Tanya Bannister, Camera Linz, Cow Print Girl, Daniel Charlesworth, B. Anderson, T. Kremkow, Mlumsks, <laughs> M. L. M. S. T. X. Username. That is such a good effort. Charles Cooper, Yeehaw, I'm a Country Chick, Rachel <laughs> Cullum, Kira O'Sullivan, Vicky Styles, and Hannah Ponsford. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Arise and welcome into the Privy Chamber. Take your seats. We'll be there shortly. So that's all for us today. So join us next time when we will review Ellen of Aquitaine and decide whether or not she will get the Rex Factor. Oh, it's so exciting. <laughs> Such a great reign. Cheerio. <laughs>